Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Today's guest played at the University of Saskatchewan has played four years overseas, two in Germany, a year in the Netherlands, and a year in France. They've been a part of our national team at FTC and with the B team. He started coaching in Holland when he was playing club over there. He's also coached with Team Sask, Canada's U17 team, and is now the head coach at College of the Rockies in the Pac West. Really excited for today's guest. Please welcome to the show, Brian Frazier. Brian, thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I'm uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of your podcast, and it's a bit of an honor to to get to chat with you here. Awesome, awesome. Can't wait to pick your brain. And where we usually start is just trying to create a timeline. And we've had a few SAS guys on the show, and just hearing from Derek Epp and a few of the other guys, like what the volleyball scene was. So for you growing up, what was your start in volleyball? And obviously, people would know you and your brother are, are both great players. So was there some backyard games going on? Did you guys play other sports, or what got your your family into volleyball? That's a good question. Yeah, we we started, I guess I started in grade nine. Tom Graham noticed me. I think we were, what was I playing? No, you know what? It was, it was Myron Mailer. He's actually the assistant coach with the Huskies now. He, uh, his sons were volleyball players and um, they were about a year older than, than I was. And uh, yeah, so he asked me to come to come play with them basically just because I was tall but so really leading up to grade nine I didn't really play very much volleyball my brothers and I and actually all of my siblings we would play we I played soccer basketball like name the sport we played it just kind of in and around the yard like a little bit of organized soccer but um yeah just really active and and we loved competing and yeah, some of the some of the games that my brothers and I made up over the years are, are pretty funny, but we uh yeah, we just we were always active and uh yeah, so Myron picked me up uh for the high school team and then Tom Graham saw me playing and then recruited me to his to his club team and that's kinda how I started in the in the sport. Nice. And, and going through the high school and club system, when did post-secondary become an option for you? Like, did you ever go to Huskies games or did you see post-secondary? Like, at what point did it click that you could play at the next level? Because as funny as it sounds, in our era, I don't think grade nine was a late start. But for kids playing now, I think grade nine's pretty late sometimes. Yeah, you're totally right. Um, yeah, my dad used to take us to Husky games quite a bit, both basketball and and volleyball. And, and I was kind of, I was playing both I always just really loved volleyball and um Ryan Gavis started recruiting me fairly young so then I was I was quite interested in in playing post-secondary and just kind of like I knew most of the player I knew about most of the players on the Huskies and and yeah they were guys that I could kind of start looking up to close to my close to the end of my grade 10 year I think and then and then yeah, Brian and I met to my grade eleven year, and it was somewhat, uh, yeah, somewhat of a clear path to to Saskatchewan. But then, actually, in grade in grade twelve, I tore my ACL playing basketball in December, um, and which was at the time right around when lots of teams um, or lots of athletes are out being recruited and going on trips and I I went to Lethbridge in January with my with my busted knee but um yeah I guess like for me it was it was the U of S 
all the way the whole the whole time partially because i didn't have offers because i had a had a busted knee but also i i really wasn't thinking of going anywhere else nice nice and i'm thinking who would have been just ahead of you that you would have a chance to watch was like the dodds era or who was on u of s that you could kind of look up to and see play at that level because I, I remember the area you're talking about like when you say they look like grown men they definitely were right yeah like they had full beards i remember <laughs> distinctly but uh no who was um so when i i get my big idol was Jarrett christensen um he actually he ended up quitting volleyball too early in my opinion he was a really great player and there was a few others that didn't really go on to play anything more. Adam McTavish, uh, Cole Hins, Dan Quintel. That was, yeah, th- those are the guys that, that I really remember um, watching growing up. Nice. And when you get into the Canada West, what were some of your impressions? Like, uh, I believe by the end of your career, you guys were making playoffs and doing well. But I think when you started there, the team wasn't competitive at times, if I'm not misspeaking here. Yeah, we so the team has not been competitive for quite a long time, and uh, I think part of the reason, part of the reason that there, there wasn't a whole lot of buy-in from the athletes as far as as far as plans to play beyond university, and then and then it was kind of all of a sudden Braden McLean, myself, and and Matt Bussey, we kind of all entered and we all had these big aspirations of, of playing pro volleyball. And actually at the time, I didn't know what that meant. Um, I just knew, I just had heard of it basically. Um, but it was a goal of mine and the three of ours. And, and yeah, so we kind of came in with a different attitude than what was typical. There was other guys, there's other older guys that also had these awesome work ethics that just weren't as passionate about volleyball um so that actually really helped it helped us we kind of created a somewhat of a different culture as far as getting after it in the weight room making sure practices were were serious um developing i guess like film analysis um as individual players because i think it used to be just a lot of coaches watched and then the players would come in for a brief a brief kind of overview and then you'd play, but then, you know, we would kind of, we had started watching video together and then we'd separate into, um, into positions and, and our buddies and we're all watching video and yeah. And so I kind of like, it took a, took a long time. The first couple of years were, were tough. And then, uh, and then actually in our, my third year, we, we, act, we didn't have success, but we had glimpses of success. I think we went to five sets like 12 times in the season, and I, we only won one or two of those games. Um, so by the end of the year, we were all like it was didn't feel great. But then in our year-end meeting, I think Brian kind of wrote down on the board how many sets we had actually won and how close we really were and i think that kind of that sparked something so that so because my last two years we were i think we finished fifth and seventh or something which uh, yeah for us we were we were quite pleased with those results yeah it's cool to hear the behind the scenes and how much time you're putting into it 
I'm wondering for your own development, how did you handle it? Because uh, the Huskies got some cool archives on your site, and I saw you're on the all-time attempts list twice, so you're getting some pretty high volume, like over 670 sets a season here. So how did you find like your role on the team and how you were developing and kind of pursuing that pro dream you had? Yeah, my role, it fluctuated big time. Did, uh, my first year, I... Uh, I was asked, I had the option, I could redshirt or roster, and I chose to roster, but um, there's another outside that was, he was solid and similar to me, so I ended up not dressing for a few games and kind of battling, and then and then that summer I actually made the junior national team, and I was pumped, and I came back, and I, I thought I was this player that I wasn't quite, and uh, <laughs> and Brian Reed, like, <laughs> absolutely let me know, know it i uh, i think i started every game that year and i don't think i ever finished a game he would <laughs> i would go into the game there would be a specific game plan i wasn't mature enough and i i you know you screw up for example maybe we're coming underneath some guys tipping on alberta jay olmstead let's say because the guys tipped a lot and uh so say he's tipping left side supposed to curl underneath pick up the tip forget that one time you know i'm out of the game and i'm super mad because i didn't quite understand what brian was trying to do and it was like that the entire season my second year and it was rough and then uh yeah, then my third year was was similar, but I started playing better and getting better stats. And yeah, it was it was up and down, but uh, but fun. And I love. I just I really like working hard. That was kind of my mo. And yeah, even though my confidence was really up and down, um, my work ethic was was there, and I think that was a big reason how i got even through five years because yeah it wasn't it wasn't easy yeah our show loves a good name drop who would have been on your junior national team squad either players or coaches that you can kind of give a shout out to oh yeah <laughs> well yeah i don't want to leave people out but um who that's, is there that's always TJ the challenge Stan. yeah <laughs> i know tj and colin carson were our setters uh nick hoke Kevin Steven from Manitoba was a left side. Juno. Yeah, he played here at Mac in Ontario. Yeah, I remember yeah, watching Kevin yeah. play. Great player. And I'm of course I'm missing left sides that that I shouldn't be. For your year, was that uh, an open tryout? Was there a national team challenge cup? Like how did the squad work in, in your era? That was yeah, I think that was one of the last like NTCC um selections you just you played the tournament at nccs and everybody knew that the, they were picking i think it was 14 guys and uh yeah they picked yeah it was and it was right at the end of the tournament and then you drove straight to uh ottawa we were at one of the colleges there and then we trained and and we hosted the tournament that year yeah it was because it, <laughs> it was unique yet i had packed for a month and a half i don't know i had i guess i had some confidence but yeah it's interesting was glenn the coach on that team i feel like when he first got involved he was big into the youth stuff so was he there around or was he the actual coach that year he was around big time but uh um greg bartell from u of r was uh, was our oh, coach okay. and, but gino was also helping out and brad pops was also our assistant coach so it was uh 
Yeah, we had some good coaching on that team as well. Nice. And was that was that confirmation? Like, how did you like to think about professional volleyball? Because obviously, you had this goal, even though maybe you weren't quite sure what it was, because there wasn't as many role models, maybe on your university team or things like that, right? So being around those guys or being around, uh, I guess the national team was in Gatineau and you were in Ottawa, but still getting a taste of it, I guess. Was that confirmation? Or was that where was that on your radar in terms of going from like your second to third year in university? It's it switched here. It uh, yeah, it switched pretty quick. Like when I got selected and when I made the trip out there, it was great, and uh, you know I was pumped. And then we started training, and I kind of um, yeah, like you start training beside Nick Hogue, and he's bombing serves not twice as hard, but it felt like twice as hard as you. <laughs> um, you know, it was kind of like a shock to to the system. Obviously, this like. Even these guys my age have have like different skills that they've developed and are using um, to help the team, and uh, it was it was pretty sweet to see. Like that was some guys were really great passers, others were unreal servers. We had like totally different middle. Lucas Van Berkel was there as our middle. Unreal blocker, unreal attacker, and then we had Tristan Aubrey, more of a blocking mitt. Like, yeah, everybody brought these these like really unique skills. It was it was cool to see, but also yeah, it was a it was a shock. Like, and then just help me out with the timeline at U of S. I believe shortly after you left is when they took the fourth because I remember them playing in the semis here at McMaster. Did you guys host your last year and get to be the eight seed? I believe that season, or was that a one gone when you graduated? Yeah. Yeah, that was one after. That was one after. Um, so do you look back and think of like with the foundation you laid? Because obviously like guys like Rempel and guys who came after you got to experience the success, but obviously where you came into the program and where you left it, obviously in a better place, right? I'd like to think so. I mean, I'm not going <laughs> to take a bunch of credit for that. I think, I think with any team, if you get enough guys that buy in and are willing to work hard, you're going to see results in. Yeah, we got lucky that the, the three of us kind of entered at the same time and just and went after it day after day. And and there's obviously like other guys that that came in and and continued and brought the level up. But uh, yeah, that's kind of how I see. I like I'm not going to take any credit for, for that. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, what should the listeners and I know about U of S? Because in speaking to like uh, when Rample was out here playing beach, I, I love chatting with him. Great guy. He was telling me that like there, there's some stuff people don't necessarily get that you guys are bussing a lot of places. Like I think you only flew to the BC games, right? So to me, that kind of makes sense why you guys were so hardworking because you sacrificed a lot. The travel schedule is pretty gnarly, and if you're on a bus, like going across four provinces can be pretty challenging, right? Yeah, yeah. That's it's. I actually didn't really like now that I'm done and I'm kind of looking. It's like I did notice it. I was like, okay, we're we're busing to Winnipeg, we're busing to Edmonton and to Calgary and all these other teams really only are busing to Saskatchewan and then flying everywhere else. Um, at the time I didn't, I didn't realize that it was, that it was like that, but, um, yeah, I don't know. There's a, there's kind of just a unspoken thing going on here in Saskatchewan that athletes are really like just hardworking, farm kids even though there's very few farm kids anymore but um yeah i don't know it's like i i it's something that you kind of feel and you can you can see in some of the top 
top Sask athletes that it's they're grinding hard to get somewhere, it seems. Now, again, not to keep saying our era, but a, a little bit older where I think some, yeah. some athletes are, are lucky now that they leave university and they go experience a pro contract. Did mm-hmm. you pursue that or was it just the natural step to go to FDC? Because we've had guys like Jeremy Mueller on the show and talk about like at the end of his era, pro wasn't really an option for a lot of guys unless you went to FDC just based on how competitive the national team was and what the, what the rest of the world thought of Canada at that time. So did you get any interest or was your goal FDC right out of university? Um, I didn't, I didn't have any interest. I don't think really anybody, I don't think anyone did. Oh, there's one person that, uh, Lucas Van Burkle, I think might've been the only one who went pro right away. And I think that was kind of, I think that was Glenn's hookup to the, to, um, that Swedish team. Um, but no, so I went to, I went to the B team tryouts after my fifth year. And I didn't make it, um, but then I was told by by Glenn and Vincent that uh, that they thought FTC was was something good for me, and it was also something that I was I was also contemplating. I didn't really have a plan, and I was going to ask them their thoughts either way. So so that was just kind of kind of secured it, and then also talking to. Um, Braden and uh, and some of the other uh, guys that I had known, either from junior national team or just playing, it was kind of um, it was kind of just a known thing. We were all going to go to FTC, and that was the the process. Nice. And talk to us about that era with uh, Vince, because we've had some guys on the show and they've shared the schedule with Dan Lewis. But I'm wondering, with Vince, was it just as hectic with like? maybe nine on court sessions because there's some two days in there and weights. Like, was it pretty gnarly to try to get you ready for pro volleyball? Like what was, what was the day to day or week to week schedule like for you guys? FTC, yeah. FTC was absolutely insane. I don't like, I guess like sometime for sure nine sessions, like we would go, it's Monday morning weights and practice evening training. Tuesday's the same Wednesdays, you wouldn't, you would train in the evening and usually there was no weights in the morning, but we had a lot of, uh, like community events that we would go to and we would go and help coach kids and, uh, and kind of like a little bit of promotion for the national team and getting ourselves out there. And so usually Wednesday morning was for that. And then Thursday, again, weights in the morning, training in the afternoon, Friday, <laughs> I don't, I, I'm quite sure either Friday was like a light morning training or nothing. And then the evening was, was something really intense so that you're absolutely wiped for the weekend. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was, it was insane. I remember like, I have to get up early. I was living out in, in Hull and I jumped on the rapid bus transit to and from uh, the training center and I would go there and back. I would come home for lunch, like just pile in the carbs, go straight to my bed, nap for an hour so that I would have like a, some kind of energy for the evening training, get up, go back. Like that was, that was every day. It was an absolute grind. How did you end up in Hull? Was that like a family hookup or did you have roommates? Like what was the, no, the living my, situation? My, um, well, my wife, I guess my girlfriend at the time, we were, 
we both moved out there and uh, we uh, we got pretty lucky. Some guy was renting his furnished apartment in in Hall. It was really a nice spot. We had a pool on the roof and wow. we got really lucky. We just rented. Yeah, that beats maybe being in Gatineau because as Felipe said on the show, uh, Gatineau makes Ottawa's nightlife look pretty good. So maybe you guys had a better spot than some of the other guys. Oh, I'm so, so glad that we were there. Yeah, yeah. We, we could walk down to the buyer market. It was, yeah, it was a great spot. So with that training schedule, was it honestly exciting when you guys would play against university teams? Because I think the what Glenn has built is really inclusive. And I noticed, uh, especially in the preseason or maybe around the holiday break, that it's pretty popular for universities to want to go to Gatineau and scrimmage. So were you guys looking forward to having somebody else across the net and maybe some gameplay instead of just getting beat down in some of these drills? That, that's interesting. It's... Uh... It was kind of exciting, but also scary because there's a lot of, of pressure put on you to implement things that we were working on into the games. And you also knew that every single thing that you did in the game would be analyzed and, and statted and, and you'd have to like kind of pay for it, not pay for it, but you know, you'd be somewhat grilled on it afterwards. So it wasn't even like it honestly wouldn't have mattered who we were playing because you are so focused on what we were currently working on at FTC that um, it was nice to play, but it was also just like, yeah, you were, it was, it was intense. There was just a lot of pressure, which is obviously what they're trying to do because also playing pro, there's a ton of pressure and it's it's hard to like i think they did a really good job by putting like making your how do i say it making your like decision making had to be like absolutely like spot on as you're playing these games and if it wasn't you'd have to talk about it talk about like you have to explain why you chose that and you know sometimes maybe you chose right and it happened wrong but usually you chose wrong and yeah (laughs) nice i've never heard that that side of it so as you're going through ftc was there ever a chance where like an a-team guy comes back or was there anybody in the program who kind of lifted you up a little bit or showed you what it's going to be like because obviously going through ftc did you feel like you had an advantage to make the national team like did you make the b team the first tryout coming out of ftc yeah i did yeah um and like absolutely we had we were super lucky we had so Dan Lewis was with us every day for the first half of the season. He's, he was having a kid, and uh, so he took half a season off. Also, Jay Blankenau was with us for the entire FTC. Josh Howitson was with us for the entire FTC. Um, TJ Sanders was with us for, I feel like, his, like two or three weeks um, while he was looking for a contract. Jason Duraco was also with us for about a month or uh, maybe two months um, while well, he was looking for a contract. And then I remember Max Burt came back early from his from his pro season and, and trained with us. And I think that's it. But yeah, we had we had unreal leadership. And yeah. Without putting you on the spot too much, we've had some Dan Lewis coaching stories. I was wondering if you could describe him as a player like I imagine just this ultra focused, ultra competitive guy. Whether you're doing server pass or actually in gameplay, right? Uh, yeah, and that's um, he's. It's really cool because he's able to kind of switch back and forth. Like he's such a funny guy, 
and uh, he can flip back and forth. Like if he's not in a drill, he's there and he's pushing you, but he's uh, like also kind of joke around and bug guys. But then as soon as either he's in a drill or if he's like there coaching you in a drill, he uh, like he just snaps into laser focus and nothing around him is bothering him. It's only him and the ball and say the server and then the one thing that he's working on and that's it and nothing will phase him until he's passed his whatever 10 balls and then he kind of snaps back out of it and it's uh yeah it's something that i love and something that i i was somewhat able to implement into my own game and i think it made a huge difference but yeah nice nice so you're going through this you're you're on the national b team you got a year ftc behind you how did you land your first contract? I believe it was in Germany, right? It was in Germany. It was on a brand new, a brand new German team from Frankfurt, and I got the contract. It was pretty late, actually. Um, Mark Dodds used to play for my head coach. Was was part of it, so I so I think he reached out. I also had an agent. Uh, but that actually didn't really come into play in this one. And then uh, um, James Gravel was also with us that summer, and he had some sort of connection uh, to an ex-player from the from the or from a player from the second club. So um, yeah, it kind of it went through a, f- a few people, but uh, yeah, so I was pretty lucky to get to get onto it. A team like that, because actually we finished third in the in the German league that year. We were really quick, a solid team. Nice. And from other other athletes we've had on the show, just first to, first impressions of the team. Were you the only foreigner? I know Germany's got a pretty loose rule. So how was how was in terms of just the lifestyle in the city? You know, speaking the language. Did everybody speak English to you? Like, how were the little things getting adjusted to the off court stuff before you really focused on the on court stuff? Yeah, getting it was a bit. It was a shock getting over there. Even though I went through FTC and was, you know, supposed to be prepared for it, it's it's pretty hard to be prepared for it. We I showed up and actually at the time I think I was the only foreigner initially because we had another left side from Slovenia, but he was playing in the European Championship at the time, and that was I think they got silver that year, so he was gone for. For quite a long time, so it was my and there was an Austrian, but that barely counts because they speak perfect German. So, uh, so yeah, it was it was very interesting. Like, and actually, our coach didn't speak. He spoke English, but he didn't like speaking. I don't think he thought he didn't think he was that good at English, but he was. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of German speaking and a lot of translating to me. And, uh, yeah, it took a while. It took a while to kind of get settled in. It took a while to connect with the guys. Um, they were all really nice, but it's, it's just hard when they're all having a conversation and you can't participate in it. And if they, and then they have to directly speak to you and then you feel bad because one guy's translating the conversation and it's, yeah, it it took a while. I feel like, but now like then, so my last year, was in munich and and by then like i'm so used to you know not being part of conversations and and having to fumble my way along that it was it was more natural and it's a little bit easier to connect with with 
your teammates because you can kind of just like force yourself, force like English onto them instead of waiting for them to, to talk to you. Nice, nice. Yeah. And, and looking ahead at your other pro deals, so Germany with two clubs, the Netherlands, France, like it's kind of cool to hear your story that your agent really didn't have that much to do with your first contract. When you started to look at other clubs, did your agent come through or was it always just making connections? Or if anyone goes on YouTube, you're a big guy, like making your own clips. So I imagine you're promoting yourself. Like how did you land these other spots? So, yeah. So after Frankfurt, then I went and, um, I was playing, yeah, I played B team again that summer and Chris Voth had just come back from Lycurgus and he was looking to, to leave and they were looking for a left side and he had a good connection with the coach and he kind of set me up and then I actually had, it was almost like an interview Skype interview with the coach, uh, which is interesting. But anyway, so they ended up. They ended up signing me, and yeah, again, my agent didn't really come into to play there. And then, so actually, I switched agents to to a much smaller um, guy named Ido Liebman from Israel, and uh, and he actually helped me find my my contract in, in France. He had some solid connections um, there, and kind of kind of hooked me up with that one. And then the German club, actually the coach had messaged me on Facebook and we had a little bit of contact and then, and then, but that was kind of it. And then my agent took over from there. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky when you're like a player like me, isn't like I wasn't, people aren't just like going after a player like me, I do have, like I had to work pretty hard to sell myself. And, uh, yeah. So I, like I relied a lot on just connections that either I had or that somebody that I knew or whatever social media or something. And, uh, yeah. So it worked out. Now I'm hopefully through this show, some of our listeners are learning that like, pro volleyball i think isn't something you dip your toe in that you got to go all in and just talking about you know dealing with the language barriers and everything else you did but say with when you're with your holland club and you guys win a championship like is that just a moment that you can't replicate and that makes it all worth it even though you're away from family and friends and possibly your wife at that time right like when you guys win and you get confirmed and you start winning those cups or championships or whatever does, does that really make it worth it or were you just love being on the court so much that you, you didn't really care about the situation or the language you were going to enjoy it either way yeah, well, my wife was actually with me all four years, so that oh, nice. really helped. She was able to, yeah, she worked at kindergartens everywhere. We, we are, I was also lucky because I was in a big city every time. Um, so that was a bonus. But yeah, this it's difficult. The seasons are so long. It like you show up initially, it's it's exciting. You're in a new place, and then you start preseason and. Typically, preseasons in Europe are fairly long, so midway through the preseason, it starts to kind of drag on, and then the season starts, and it's exciting, and you get going, and uh, yeah, it's, there's like there's a lot of up and downs. There's a lot of really exciting times, and then there's a lot of a lot of there's a lot of free time. There's a lot of time to think. There's a lot of there's also a lot of pressure on you to play well because you are you're always the foreigners canadian 
and and yeah and then again i like then i'm putting pressure on myself because i don't like my stats from one game it's that's yeah, a whole thing but all like for sure i like i remember all of the big wins and all of the big like games that i started in and all of the big plays and like looking back it's absolutely worth the grind in my opinion and i got to live in these really like amazing cities and yeah so like for example like winning the championship in holland was was great because initially we started the season as the favorites and then we lost a couple big games and even our own like our own club um i guess board members like we didn't really have a lot of support by the end of the year and then we were able to to turn it on and and come back and and win and yeah so those sorts of things totally make it worth it that's unreal but yeah it's definitely it's not easy but and just to to build on your point there how did you find dealing with the pressure of you know expectations you're the foreigner like you you need to perform like was it nice just having your wife at home and you could go home and not talk about volleyball or were you diving deeper and watching video at home or looking at your stats like he said like how did you find a way to manage like being the guy on these teams yeah and i mean i like as the years went on it it changed and like for sure my first like my poor wife for sure like i can talk volleyball all day and she'll just sit there and and listen and talk with me but um yeah and like initially when i first got out there yeah the pressure's really high and and yeah, it used to take me like quite a while to kind of get back into my into my groove. But as as the years went on, it just like I don't know. The the worst case scenario really is never that bad, and it very rarely goes to the worst case scenario of like what being fired and having to go back home. Then you get to see your family, anyways. But that like that's so rare and not really something that. Um, was ever really a possibility because I wasn't doing, I was never doing that bad. But um, yeah, looking looking back on it, I guess I've just developed ways. Like I don't know, I started meditating in the mornings, and I would I was able to take my mind off of volleyball enough so that uh, so that I could calm myself down, and then and then you know you kind of like fix things or change my my mental state within you know the next day sort of thing whereas before in my first season it probably took me probably took me close to a week to kind of get back <laughs> after a bad game yeah it's funny that you talk about the worst thing is just being cut yeah the first thing that came to my mind is you're not getting paid but uh, i'm finding that those situations are hopefully more rare than the horror stories we hear every once in a while yeah yeah i was i was lucky i had i was in clubs where well in germany you're they're basically forced to pay you because of of i think the club gets in big trouble um yeah i didn't have any issues with with payment thank goodness but i've also heard a lot of a lot of the horror stories and it's yeah i'm I'm stressful for sure now speaking of germany you're playing in munich or close to munich whatever if somebody wants to argue the details with me whatever but you're wearing the lederhosen jerseys when you first see that in person are you absolutely fired up or are you thinking like what are these like when we first saw them, I, well, I was in, I was playing in Frankfurt for the United Follies, 
And yeah, they came to Frankfurt and they showed up. And after the game, my wife was just like, we'd never seen anything like this before. And she was just baffled. And she, she actually made the comment, you're never ever going to play for this team <laughs> and like she was like and yeah so here we are so i don't like i guess it's cool like when you're on the team the jerseys fit the kind of the culture of the team but if you're not on the team it like it's yeah it's terrible and it looks really funny but whatever it makes for okay pictures i suppose now, obviously, you're you're a foreigner, but you're living in that city. I'm wondering what is October uh, Oktoberfest, excuse me, like to a local? Because I've experienced as a tourist, and I think it's amazing. But are the guys on your team fired up to go to the beer garden, or like you, the only one, because you haven't experienced it your whole life? Like maybe they have. No, like they're more fired up than I am. Oh, know. nice. We, <laughs> our club, actually, one of our sponsors bought us a uh, a couple tables in one of our our. Well, we had a beer sponsor for our team, so at their tent and uh yeah so we showed up and and we had a bunch of beer bought for us and no and then some of those guys also went back and um no it's a yeah it's like i know what you mean because tourists sometimes come in and almost ruin things but in this case it's it's not like that at all the locals love it just as much if not more than the tourists yeah, it's something you got to experience once, maybe maybe a couple times, but it's not something you need to do the rest of your life. I was convinced, but uh, it, it was pretty awesome when I went. Yeah, no, I'm with you. If I I would I would never go to Munich specifically for that. Now that I have been there and done it, but if you haven't, it's 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 a scene for sure. <laughs> now, help me with the timeline. Obviously, you're coaching in the Pac West now, but in just doing some research for the show, I believe you were coaching when you were playing in Holland. Did you not coach uh, a second division team on the women's side? Maybe I did. I did. They weren't second division though. They were. I think they were third division in Holland. Um, yeah, I did coach. It was kind of a like we were all there, and uh, we actually practiced quite. I think we practiced three to five was our evening practice, uh, and so there we had lots of time. So actually, most of the guys had a team that they were coaching, and I don't know the one or actually I had two teams. One was kind of a lower level women's team, and one was a little bit higher. Um, and and. Uh, yeah, so we just kind of showed up, and yeah, it was kind of my first my first go at creating practice plans for athletes, and it was somewhat of a strength program, and yeah, I enjoyed it. It was something to something to kind of do in the evenings because we really had our evening. It was a weird schedule there for sure. Now, just for my benefit and the listeners as well, is that normal in clubs that they just have? like a dozen teams under the same banner, like you would be on the pro team and they just have either like youth teams or second or third division teams. Like are some of these clubs just so big that, that the community team is a part of your pro club? I like there's not usually there. They wouldn't have a bunch of teams underneath, but they would for sure have one or two or maybe, maybe even up to five. Like it's yeah. The, like the pro league is the first division. In, when we were in Frankfurt, my wife played on, I think it was the sixth division of, of one of the clubs. Um, so, like, it's a, it ranges. It was so senior women's is, I guess, kind of in the same category as 
a pro team. It just depends on what division you make. And if you win that season, you get to move up a division. If you if you are really bad, you move down a division, and and that's actually how lots of uh, lots of pro teams get started in Europe. Is you just kind of climb through the divisions until you until you have to become a professional team to compete. So you're still playing, but are you going home? And that's when you got involved in Team Sask. Like, did this Holland coaching opportunity kind of spark what you wanted to do after playing, or or when did you start getting involved in like either provincial team or national team programs as a coach? Yeah, I um, so after Holland, I I was kind of I didn't know if I wanted to play national team or not. I was kind of I was waiting to hear if I was going to get selected for the A team or not, um, and I didn't. And then yeah, my wife and I decided that I wasn't going to go try out for the B team again. So I went back to Sask and and reached out to Joel Dick is the is a high performance trainer here and um yeah so they hired me on as an assistant coach and i got to yeah i got a little taste of team sask and we got to go to um i guess it's called canada cup now and it was uh yeah it was fun i really i really enjoyed it and so then i came back the, the following year and i got the head coach and uh yeah and with your own experience, like we could go down the list here. Sometimes really high performing athletes don't make the best coaches. How did you find your journey going from a player to a coach? Like, were you in a phase where you wanted to hammer balls at the 17s and show off that you're a pro player? Or were you into like teaching and learning right off the bat? Like, how did you find the, the transfer from playing to coaching? Yeah, I think, I think FTC honestly kind of really sparked my interest in coaching just because it had such a huge impact on on my game and my career i feel like i feel like i'm almost two different players coming into ftc and then going out of ftc because basically all they did was break down your technique and build it up so that you can compete at uh, the international level and and i think it worked pretty well for me and I just I just I love the idea of being able to break athletes down a little bit build up a base and then let them be as creative as they want as long as there's you know they have a base of of a a few things that are really necessary to be a volleyball player or be a hot player and that's yeah that's kind of where I got it and I mentioned earlier, you were a big guy on, you know, posting highlights and getting clips and stuff like that. So in watching some of your game, we talked about this before the show, I found your left side approach pretty unique where your close step, like your hips are, are looking at the setter, like your shoulders are facing them. I'm just wondering, how did that develop? Do you describe to me how you still have vision? You can still hit line. Like, are you just so big on like the external rotation or how did you find that uh, that was going to work for you or no coaches were going to fight you on like that type of footwork? I think it's kind of a, I get like, yeah, it's, it's definitely built up over the years, but initially I really, I just loved the, the no look line shot when I was with the junior national team, I think some of the, I think it was Fred Winters was out just hitting balls with one of the setters and he was only working on the shot. And I thought it looked so cool. <laughs> and so I, so, so I kind of fig, like figured out how to do that myself. And then I guess also I don't, I, 
I want to be like have an external arm swing, but I really I don't, and I'm more of a natural like inside arm guy. Like, and so that allows me to hit, or it used to, I guess, allow me to hit sharp cross court without without you know popping my shoulder out of out of place. Um, yeah, that I think I really I think that's kind of the only reason why. And then, yeah, my really my favorite shot is is down the line or is line like a line shot that looks like a no look, like you continue looking sharp cross and the ball's still going down the line. So obviously, it worked for you. Are you teaching that to any athletes you're currently working with? Uh, no, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't <laughs> do that. If if there's an athlete that really like if they could not go cross court because of their arm swing, I would maybe think about doing that but also really like not before they can hit the line shot as well otherwise you're kind of just screwing yourself over I feel like that's I hope I'm not teaching it like that but <laughs> well I think consciously I am I think you were athletic enough to change it where your your spin serve approach isn't the same as your spike approach like I don't think you're mm-hmm. you're turning your feet completely right so it was yeah. it was a conscious adjustment there now that I hear you describe it yeah for sure yeah Nice. So now that you're you're coaching and you've completed your full season in the Pac West, how do you enjoy that so far? Like you're you're working with student athletes. How are you finding times to like manage it going from like the pro world to, you know, they're dealing with exams and busy with other stuff? Like how did you find making the jump into a full time coach? Um, yeah, it was interesting. It was it was a lot of learning and I I don't know how great of a job I really did. I I I enjoyed it tremendously, mostly just because I love, I just, I really love volleyball and do anything that I'm doing that's, that involves volleyball at all. I just, it doesn't really feel like work. It's, it's enjoyable. I can, I can put the time in and not feel stressed about it. And and then also I just, I'm really happy that I get to continue being in the, gym working with athletes and um yeah this year is a little bit unique i came into the year and and you know there we started out with 13 players and then um we ended up losing a few and by the end of the year we had 10 players on our roster and so it was it was unique and it made me you know i had to be pretty creative with our practices because we couldn't even just play six on six for a lot of it um but it was fun. I mean, I like planning practices. I, I like choosing drills that I would like as a player. And I also like dabbled in inventing drills. Most of them didn't work. A few of them were okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think it was it was fun. I'm looking forward to continuing it this year and and uh, yeah, seeing where it goes. Nice. I'm happy to hear that, you know, FTC and being around the national team influenced you, but it's not like you're just pulling out a book of Glenn drills that you've written down and using them. So when you're, when you're inventing a drill, what is your process? Like, are you just identifying the situation you want to work on and then shoot, we only got eight practices or eight players on our Tuesday night practice. How are we going to make this work? Or or what is the the process that's working best for you? Yeah, it's a lot of it is, I guess it was with limited players trying to make the drill as realistic as possible and uh yeah it's still really difficult like i don't know for example if you're trying to work on defense it's totally different defending a ball if someone's standing on the box 
or if there's an attacker coming in live, but we don't have enough attackers to, um, to just, or like we don't have enough players for us to just run live attackers at our defenders. Um, so I don't know, I would grab a Boshu ball or I would grab a pad or I would have like an extra ball to come in to try to add some sort of unknown to the drill just because, yeah, I don't like, and also I don't really have a coaching philosophy because some coaches are really big on, you know, own, like every drill has to be, has to relate perfectly back to live, um, like volleyball, you know, like you always have a live block when you're attacking or you always are doing whatever. And, but and I do believe in that also, but I also just, as a player, I really like some totally basic drills. Like I actually really like just digging balls with somebody bombing them at you off the box. I think I, I just got a lot of joy and I feel like I got a lot of, um, uh, it positively affect my game. So yeah, it's, it's, I have a total mix as far as that goes. Yeah, I'm just curious because a lot of us haven't been lucky enough to be a part of a professional club. Are you guys doing gameplay the whole time with your pro clubs? Are you breaking down skills? Are you letting guys like bomb balls at you like you just said? Like, what would a pro season feel like? Because I think that that's caught up right now in the coach community is everybody wants transfer. And we know that transfer is best when things are game-like and specific, right? So with you wanting to break things down or have to get creative with numbers... Was there anything you could steal from your pro club or is it just so much about performance that when you go to practice, like we're game playing and really monitoring jumps and just making sure you're ready for the game? There's definitely more gameplay with a pro club than because they're not really worried about athlete development. They, they hire you for your services that you have already proven and you have to, you know, you have to perform that or higher. Um, but that's kind of what they paid for but they depending like I, yeah each club was a little bit different but there are definitely like for sure each each coach that i had had at least a handful of drills that that i really liked as a player and thought that um i was benefiting from um so yeah it's like i really like I want to, I want all of my athletes to just be the best volleyball players possible. And, and I know that if you only do gameplay, you, like you can't quite get there. And I know that as like from FTC, um, unless the athlete already has a really strong base, but at the, at the college women's college level that I'm at, that's, that's somewhat rare. So, um, yeah, I, uh, there's, there's a pretty big mix between, between skill development and, and gameplay. Nice. Yeah, I think the, the college season is deceptively long, so I feel like there is time for both and time for performance and all that good stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there is. Um, it takes a little bit of planning. I'm not, I'm not, I'm still trying to figure out that out as far as, as when I can start breaking athletes' skills down or when it's time to start building them back up. Because I actually made, I made that mistake with a team SAS team. I kind of, there's a few kids that really needed some work. So we kind of went down to the basics and then we didn't quite get it back by the Canada Cup. And I, um, yeah, so hopefully I've somewhat learned from that. But so coaching is, it's all about learning too. <laughs> that's true. That's very true. 
Awesome, man. Well, it's it's been great speaking to you and learning about your journey and awesome that you're you're still involved in our sport and switched to the the coaching world. One thing we're trying to make a tradition on the show is just to tell a funny story. So you've been overseas, you represented the national team, but something funny still had to happen along the line. So I was wondering if you could give us just a, a funny story before we let you go. Yeah, I do. I have a funny story. It's at, it's from FTC actually, and I'm not. I don't know if I'm going to set it up properly or not, but basically what happened is it was after Christmas. We had come back. We had three weeks off after Christmas, and then I think we were back for about a week and I believe this happened on a Monday and uh, so we showed up to morning training we're, we're warming up and then all of a sudden Vincent well actually like you could tell when Vincent came into the gym what kind of day it was going to be and <laughs> like so we, we we were on edge let's say and he, so he comes in and Andre Brown was chewing gum and I actually I was also chewing gum and I think one of the other guys was chewing gum but he so he comes up to Andre Brown and just lays into him for for chewing gum something that he's done I think he did it like almost every day and he's laying into him and he's actually I think he dumped a like he took a blocking box and shoved it over and it made this big crashing sound and me, I'm just that like I swallowed my piece of gum. I was really <laughs> so scared. I had no idea what was going on, and Andre had no idea what was going on. And we, everyone was just stunned. And then Vincent kind of storms off, and Andre was so mad. And it was it, like it was really incredible. And at the time, we had no idea what was happening, but I like, and I still like we didn't get a clear answer. But I think what it was is that he was trying to prepare us for like a coach that was super intense which I had a couple of them and I like now I can understand why he did that because just the most random things can happen to you and that you're not expecting and but it was really like quite funny because I'm sure Vincent had planned to pick on Andre and just pick something that he like it would have been how his shoes were tied or something else but <laughs> it was so funny that he picked this piece of gum oh man oh but yeah that's awesome small world eh because you you played at the club after andre was there and i think jory mantha came after so all of you are pretty connected because i think jory would have been around the junior national team when you were there or maybe the year after like i think it's funny I how played, i played b team with jury for one summer yeah so all these canadians just keep ending up at the same club which means you must have left it in another good place that uh, the reputation and the lasted the jury could make a home there right <laughs> i guess so i guess so. jury's <laughs> having a pretty good season over there so he's he's helping it out as well well, like I said, man, this is awesome. Uh, hopefully Pack West gets back to normal or you get a competition schedule or you get an opportunity to train. But if not, it sounds like you're, you're really excited about coaching and learning and, and getting things going that way. But uh, thanks for sharing the playing stories and best of luck. We'll have to get you on when you get some coaching stories too. Yeah, for sure. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's uh, Yeah, this is really fun. Appreciate it.